environmental conversations on creative arts, scholarship, and teaching. This This is is Ecocast. Ecocast. Hello and welcome to Ecocast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Lindsay Jolivet. And I am Brandon Dolm. Welcome. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Today, we're going to be talking to the Anti-Creep Climate Initiative about their zine against the eco-fascist creep, debunking eco-fascist myths. The Anti-Creep Climate Initiative was formed in 2021 by April Anson, Cassie Galantine, Shane Hall, Alex Manriski, and Bruno Serafin. April is an assistant professor of public humanities at San Diego State University, core faculty for the Institute for Ethics and Public Policy, and affiliate faculty in American Indian Studies. Cassie is a doctoral candidate in English at the University of Oregon. Shane is an assistant professor of environmental studies at Salisbury University. Alex is an assistant professor in English and affiliate faculty in American Studies at the University of Connecticut and the author of Wild Abandon, American Literature and the Identity Politics of Ecology. Bruno is a doctoral candidate in sociocultural anthropology with a graduate minor in American Indian and Indigenous Studies at Cornell University. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Would you please say hello to our listeners? Hello, thank you for having us. I'm April Anson and I am speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Kumeyaay people in what's currently called San Diego. Hi, I'm Cassie, and I'm coming to you from what is now called Eugene, Oregon, um, which is located on Kalapuya Alei, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Hi, I'm Shane. Um, I am uh, zooming in from the land of the Wicomico peoples in what is now called Salisbury, Maryland. Hi, this is Alex Manriski. Uh, thank you for having us. Um, I'm uh, talking to you from unceded Narragansett and Wampanoag lands, uh, South Providence, Rhode Island. Hey, everyone. This is Bruno. I am also calling in from Kumeyaay Territory, a.k.a. San Diego. Thank you all so much for being here. This is very exciting. Uh, we've talked about it a little bit beforehand, but this is our, our largest podcast to date. So uh, in terms of, of numbers, maybe maybe not the actual longest or anything like that, but uh, I guess we'll find out here in, over the next uh, several minutes. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much. I'm really excited to have you on here. I've been, um, I've been excited for a while, ever since I've been seeing the, um, the zine make its rounds on Twitter and stuff like that. So I'm um, really, really excited to have you all here to share this. Before we go um, any further into sort of our discussion about the zine, since we're all really excited to hear about it, could you give a quick summary of what exactly a reader can expect to find in this zine that you've put together? Yeah, of course. Um, So Against the Eco-Fascist Creep is a webzine and a teaching resource that uh, our anti-creep climate initiative put together to help debunk, identify and debunk eco-fascist myths in our popular culture. Um, A reader would open up the zine and see that it's broken into a couple different sections. The first section uh, is a fun, humorous send-up of a sort of fan fiction of the Marvel's Avengers uh, plot, uh, where, where Thanos 
uh, our big eco-fascist figure tries to wipe out, or successfully does wipe out half of life in the universe uh, as an eco-fascist move. Uh, and we we imagine through this comic retelling with, with wonderful work of a graphic designer to help make it a reality, Melody Keenan. Um, what that would look like to, to think that scene through from a, a more critical perspective. We then uh, usher in the second portion where we define ecofascism and we um, identify six everyday myths that we see creeping into increasingly environmentalist rhetoric and discourse and more popular culture ideas about climate change, militarism, migration. Um, and so we we tackle those in very short, pithy uh, essays, and then we give the reader some tactics, strategies, and resources to try to debunk their own eco-fascist myths that they run into and effectively uh, fight for and build climate justice in the communities they're working in, which is, of course, our goal. Um, and so we're we're really grateful that Asley is hosting this, so anybody can click on the webzine, and so it's meant to be for anybody who has the internet or access to the internet Um to be able to, to find it on Asley's website. So thank you all. Awesome. Yeah. And so we're going to um, play a short clip here, short audio clip from uh, uh, Avengers Infinity War, I think is the what the one that it's coming from. Um, just to kind of give our listeners a sense, if you aren't familiar, uh, you know, these are uh, obviously very popular films. Uh, a lot of our students are obviously very familiar with it, but, you know, uh, not everyone uh uh, that's listening might be familiar with it. So this is just a short clip, uh, about a minute or so to uh, just give you a sense for uh, what Thanos's uh, reasoning and justifications are for his, for his actions. I was a child when you took me. I saved you. We were happy on my home planet. Going to bed hungry, scrounging for scraps. Your planet was on the brink of collapse. I'm the one who stopped that. Half the planet. A small price to pay for salvation. Do you know what's happened since then? The children born have known nothing but full bellies and clear skies. It's a paradise. Little one, it's a simple calculus. This universe is finite, its resources finite. If life is left unchecked, life will cease to exist. I'm the only one who knows that. At least I'm the only one with the will to act on it. Now, that's great to have that clip that we can kind of hear Thanos's voice speaking to the issues that then the zine talks about in more detail. Um, it would be great if all of you could kind of share your thoughts on using popular media as a communicator of environmental ideas. Um, as Brandon said, you know, a lot of our students like the Avengers series, comic books in general, superhero movies. Um, so as a sort of environmental teaching tool or even as a scholarly, scholarly pursuit in general, um, can you tell us about the choice to use the Avengers in this way and where that inspiration came from? Yeah, this is Bruno. Um, environmental themes, I think, are very prevalent in popular media right now or um, environmental adjacent themes or... Uh, kind of the feelings of, of climate change and everything that that kind of brings on. And the films Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame are really prime examples of that. And these are some of the biggest, most popular, well-known movies on the planet. I mean, Avengers Endgame is up there with Avatar and Titanic. And, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. just, you know, about as big as a movie could possibly be. And Thanos is a very, very well-known character. 
Um, so kind of having this well-known figure with a ideology and a perspective that is also very well known and is already being debated and talked about widely. Um, you know, people see the movies and they debate, you know, what was Thanos talking about? Does do his ideas make sense? Um, that's a great way to start those conversations about these kind of a little bit more complex and sometimes difficult issues that can lead us to talking seriously about things like eco-fascism and also settler colonialism and white supremacy. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think we wanted to intervene in those conversations that are already happening both online and in person. And so having this kind of fun media hacking sort of what if scenario where what if the movie in, in addition to them, you know, beating up Thanos and ultimately destroying him, they were also kind of debunking his ideology and kind of pointing out all the flaws in this <laughs> kind of eco-fascist narrative that he was constructing. Um <laughs> In addition to that, it's a critique of the film. And I say this as a Marvel fan. I really liked Avengers Infinity War. Um, I had a blast watching it. And, you know, but it's it's as a film, it's kind of sympathetic to Thanos in a way. And therefore, it's kind of sympathetic to his eco-fascist ideology in a way. And it kind of lets him off the hook. So we wanted to intervene in that. Um, and as a third way, it's just a fun way, I think, pedagogically to start those conversations about environmental politics, environmental ethics, resource scarcity. Um, it's a great way to just get those conversations started because pretty much everybody knows Thanos or is kind of familiar with the Avengers or superheroes. So it's a, a fun way to get things started, I guess, maybe in a classroom mm -hmm. or just in day-to-day -day conversations with people. Yeah, I'm curious how many of you have students who... Um have the like because i mean that was one of the things when that movie first came out it was like hmm thanos makes some really interesting points you know like it's <laughs> it's that kind of like again you're saying is a sympathetic character so i'm wondering how many of you uh in using this in your classrooms have had students um you know start from that perspective uh at all i have uh, alex this is alex here i i definitely have hmm. Sorry, april april you did I, I oh gosh i'm so sorry um <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, that that recognition is not um, that that kind of familiarity of those arguments is not something that I've experienced only limited to the classroom. Like it's everywhere in the classroom. I experienced it myself <laughs> in watching Thanos. And I that's one of them. You know, the main motivators behind the project is it's is is a, a, um, a call or a prompting to reflection of why these arguments slide so frictionlessly into our common sense mm -hmm. and the ways that they have just they're repeated and repeatedly unchallenged when research has shown that you know there's just tomes and tomes and tomes of scholarship disproving these uh, myths even if even if we didn't care about ethics of particular environmental solutions these are not viable environmental solutions. Mm -hmm. So the, the, I think, you know, so much of the motivation of the project is compassion building for ourselves and our communities in the classroom and outside the classroom so that we're able to, to call each other to account a little bit or call each other in when these things, when they slip into my consciousness, you know, um, and go unquestioned because we're trained out of um, not questioning those things. So so yes, a resounding yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is Shane. I would just add that I wouldn't say that my students in classroom or my friends or my family say like, oh, Thanos had really good ideas. <laughs> but the ideas that that 
Thanos speaks in that clip that you just played and in other parts of the movies are the ideas that are batted around, whether they're in public policy, on Twitter, in those conversations, and yeah, in our like students' intro essays or their like, you know, senior seminar essays. Mm -hmm. These are ideas that have, have crept or permeated a lot of different kinds of environmental consciousness. So that that was sort of our call to action was to use Thanos as that lightning rod, that megaphone that could crystallize. That's a lot of metaphors I just used, but <laughs> y'all get it. Like that could bring us all to the table so that we could talk about all these different myths. Yeah. And I would, I would add um, onto that, just saying I haven't had a chance to use the zine yet in the classroom, but I can think of times where it would have been really useful. So like I used to teach, um, you know, the tragedy of the commons, Garrett Hardin essay to my students as a way into talking about, you know, logical fallacies and, mm-hmm. um, and before they knew it was going to be a lesson on logical fallacies, a lot of them would sort of glom on to this, um, argument. Um, and, you know, I think it, like April was saying, like it, they, these arguments become such a foundational, like part of our common sense, like public knowledge or ideas. And so it would have been a really useful tool in a moment like that. Um, to be able to sort of say, okay, um, what is the actual evidence behind what Hardin is saying? Um, and, and are there other ways of looking at this? Speaking of sort of this, the importance of not allowing the sort of eco-fascist ideas to continue unchecked or just accepting them as something that we can see the logic in, I am really, really interested to know more about why you chose the zine format. I think you're speaking to a lot of like, okay, popular culture can be easily taught. It it gives people a jumping off point for larger issues. And I think that's a great pedagogical um, tool is using this sort of popular media. But zines, you know, are a specific form themselves and have a connection to anti-fascist and um, sort of other marginalized groups. I know there there are a lot of queer zines, for example. And so I'm interested in, in if that was part of your decision to make a zine specifically, um, and sort of what the benefits that come from this form are. Yeah, I can um, take that. This is Cassie. Um, So I came onto the project after like the idea of it being a zine had sort of already taken form. But what drew me to this project and to this format specifically um, was just my very recent experience with zines. I mean, I hadn't seen them or engaged with them much, um, until a few years ago after, uh, the murder of George Floyd and, um, protests broke out here in Portland and Eugene. Um, and I remember every protest I went to, there were zines passed around and I'd never seen so many people actively engaged in the same text at one time. Like it's, it's such a, um, concise, accessible way of disseminating information. And so, for example, um, in addition to protests, we had a lot of teach-ins in town. And so zines would be distributed at these teach-ins as a like follow-along resource with what was being taught about. So if you went to a protest or a teach-in related to the history of white supremacy and the history of Oregon sort of being formed as this white supremacist state in the United States, it would be accompanied with a zine that would kind of give some of that background, give sources in a very concise way that I think um, got a lot of people more involved and thinking critically than other formats maybe can. This is Bruno. Oh, yeah. I'll just add, um, just to add to that also. Yeah. Well said, Cassie. 
Um, I think the zine format also um, lends itself to being a little bit of a field guide for, you know, uh, eco-fascist talking points or premises or um, assumptions that you might encounter in, you know, in the classroom or in day-to-day life with family, with friends, et cetera. And I think, you know, maybe I'll speak personally, you know, I can get into a situation where someone says something along the lines of the fir- of this first eco-fascist myth that we talk about in the zine, which is Thanos's point, which is overpopulation is killing the planet or something like that. Like somebody says something like mm-hmm. that and you kind of, you freeze up and I think, oh, I can think back to all of these like, you know, history books and all this like theory that I've read that could easily disprove that. But I, you know, I didn't have just a very concise summary of like why that's wrong and how to kind of respond in the moment. And so the zine format kind of has these real short little, you know, mini essays that not only respond to that one myth, but actually five others. So six total of the things that you might encounter. So, you know, rather than a big tome, it's like uh, gives you a snappy answer to uh, to an unfortunate thing you might hear. Mm-hmm. At so least so that's the intention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's a great intention. So, Cassie, you said it was already a zine when you came on. So, whose idea was it to make it a zine, or was it sort of a thing that came about through a collective conversation? You're like, how do we communicate these ideas? And zine was thrown out there, or something like that. I think initially it was. Um, this is April. I think initially the um, the idea was based on our capacity. Um, none of us wanted to put our own money. <laughs> none of us had money to give. Yeah. Let's it that way. Had yes. And and we also, as um, Cassie and Bruno so eloquently spoke to, we we were envisioning it as a just immediately useful tool and an immediate mm-hmm. intervention into public conversation. And the zine as a form has that history that you described, Lindsay. So mm-hmm. it had that force behind it. Um, I, I'll speak for myself and um, to say that I had no experience making a zine before. Mm-hmm. And we did, I think we did such a good job and then had our own superhero in the graphic designer of Melody Keenan, <laughs> who really turned it into um, the beautiful product and made our ideas. And in and in the process of um, working with her, the form demanded clearer ideas from us mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. which is a really magical, um, magical yeah. process. And am I... I might be misremembering this, but I thought we, you know, a part of this is we were thinking about the online culture and spread of fascist Mm -hmm. ideas um, Mm -hmm. and how these kinds of interventions could, could sort of fight that. And I think in a way it was sort of like almost a joke of like, well, zines are such a like traditionally uh, analog kind Mm -hmm. of resource, Mm -hmm. but a webzine would be a way of taking really, I think the seed though was the, the comic portion, the reimagining mm-hmm. Thanos's dialogue that, that Bruno really like deserves all the credit of imagining this for like years of this talk back and then saying like, well, we could make it into a zine and throw some other stuff in there. Um, I don't know. That might be, you should edit this out if this is like totally me misremembering our whole process. <laughs> I honestly don't remember. I think it was a, there was a few ideas that kind of like, I wanted to do something about Thanos and April yeah. wanted to do something, you know, and it all kind of came together to be yeah. this kind of uh, multi-part thing that it is now. 
April, you mentioned that that Melody was, you know, kind of your group's superhero. Do, do you all have other favorite superheroes? I feel like Alexander Reed Ross has to. Has to get <laughs> <laughs> can I say like, can I say like Vandana Shiva or somebody like that? Sure, yeah, why I, not? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would say I don't, I'm not like deep into the Marvel universe, so I don't have like a traditional favorite uh, superhero, but for me recently, George the Cat on Twitter, um, uh, nice. the orange tabby uh, labor activist specifically focused on um, farm worker rights and environmental mm-hmm. justice for farm workers. Um, so follow George the Cat if you're not already. He is a true hero and I love him. Yeah. We'll, we'll even, a, you know what? We'll even link to, to Jorts in yeah. our show notes this time. <laughs> in addition to all of you, <laughs> I can add a serious like- answer, which is Miss um, Marvel, the new series. Mm. Like, she is just, oh man, I just get so excited every with every episode of that <laughs> show. I think she is just amazing. <laughs> and it's she's a Pakistani American youth superhero. Mm-hmm. I think that it's a, um, I think it's one of those cultural icons right a superhero that also has its own particular power to communicate these sort of issues i mean at least for me i grew up with watching captain planet uh <laughs> and i'm sure lots of people did in my generation um and i think that you know we can we can kind of see that as a whole extra element of the scene project the the significance of using superheroes mm-hmm. and how people in society connect to superheroes and how that could potentially be part of mobilizing these anti-fascist ideas yeah there's a if i don't know if maybe all of you are familiar with it already there i think it's in the edited collection called queer ecologies um but there's Mm -hmm. a a really awesome essay about captain planet in that Mm -hmm. um that breaks down like why actually that show is terrible um because mm-hmm. you know, it, it's really um it's it's actually similar to some of the stuff we were talking about in our our, our previous episode but um just the the notion that um everyone is equally responsible uh, you know you have all these people from all these different backgrounds who are coming together to to fix the mm-hmm. planet but it's not really recognizing the imbalances that are are in there at all um so yeah it's, it's a really good i think it's in the book queer ecologies um but uh, yeah, it's really, really cool essay on, on Captain Planet. Tangent, sorry. <laughs> I'm definitely shocked that there hasn't been some kind of big budget reboot of Captain Planet yeah. in the last yeah. 10 years. I I yeah. cannot understand why. It feels like they're leaving money on the table. There. I mean, <laughs> whoever, I all whoever owns the rights to it. Yeah. yeah. Didn't Funny or Die do with like Don Cheadle or something yeah. like that? Like a, like a spoof kind of thing. That was, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's the closest that's right. that we've gotten. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> They're trying to figure out how to translate that early '90s rosy-eyed optimism for yeah. for the the 2020s. Yeah, uh, I, I guess the con. Uh, oh no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think the concept of a superhero is kind of maybe problematic. Maybe that's sort of obvious, but so I don't really believe in superheroes in real life. But um, in terms of Marvel, I'm you know I think my favorite would be Black Panther, um, just because he. You know, if you watch the movies that he's in, he's always learning and he's changing his behavior based on new information and his interactions with the other characters. Um, so he really, you know, he's always kind of improving himself as a, as a hero. So that's a quality that I really, I really dig. That's a that's a that's a really really great example of yeah. All right, um, I guess I have to answer mine <laughs> since I'm there. I thought maybe we were gonna escape with 
without me, but I, I thought about this uh, long and hard while, while Brenna was talking there. Since the birth of my son uh, at the end of last year, I have tried to stream all of Doctor Who uh, since the mm. 2005 reboot mm. and have come through this project to see the Doctor as a form of superhero. But I just mostly want to boast that I've watched 100, <laughs> yes, 175 hours of television. <laughs> yeah. um, but similar to the way that Bruno talks about Black Panther, the Doctor is always learning uh, their you know, they're a militant pacifist. They refuse to use mm-hmm. weapons. Um, they, you know, take on a number of different forms and, uh, and you know, I don't know. It's just a cool show. Um, that's, that's the end of that. But um, I guess, so my, my uh, I have kind of a, a follow-up question that's, that's maybe a little bit related to that. And um, maybe you don't have an answer to that. And, and so that's totally fine. But um are there any plans for a sequel, right? Are there other, do you have uh, other superheroes or, um, you know, that you want to take a look at and you plan to do a, a second uh, zine um, that, that kind of breaks down that uh, aspect of, of their eco-fascism or even maybe not even necessarily eco-fascism, but taking a look at, um, you know, another, uh, you know, problematic aspect of, of superhero films or popular culture in general. What's next, I guess, is the, 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 the basic question. Well, I know that we can each individually answer that for um, our own research and, um, and that we, I think I, can, I think I can safely speak for all of us to say that this, um, the experience with working with each other has been so rich and rewarding and so fun um, and a real lesson in how much better thinking happens when we're doing it in community and, and writing also, how much better our writing is when we're doing it together. Um, and I think that the, the unfortunate truth about this project is that it becomes newly relevant um, and it became newly relevant right before it, uh, we released it with mm-hmm. the, the mass murder in Buffalo and his screed that he posted. And so, I mean, this is maybe a punt on the question. All that to say is that like, to reiterate or tie back to something that Alex said about, you know, fascism or, and, and I think it was Shane that said this, that, um, that we wanted it to operate um, like fascist rhetoric operates, which is synthetic and syncretic and it is alive and responsive to the moment. And so um, I imagine I, I hope that there will never be a need for a second project. Let's put it that way. And <laughs> also anticipate that there may be, um, you know, ways that the climate crisis uh, helps us redefine and, um, and imagine and understand more specifically and acutely what ecofascism is and how it works. This is Shane. I would just say that we came together as, as five like-minded scholars who are concerned with violence, um, eco-fascism. And so I would think that if we do, as a anti-creep climate initiative, continue to do public humanities scholarship together, I would imagine that would be the through line more so than um, necessarily superheroes or even a Mm -hmm. zine format. But like April was saying, the um, we had so much fun doing this together and we thought so much more differently and better. I know it's it's really reinvigorated my own solo scholarship um, to to think through and learn and just get the references and the stylistic uh, differences of having co-authors and collaborators. Um, but I would imagine that the sequel would be 
as April said, based off of the need to respond to the rise of of ecofascism in in our polity more than uh, an allegiance to form or or style in that sense. Yeah, and this is this is Cassie speaking. I, this just came to my mind, so I haven't really discussed it with the group, but something I was thinking about, like for me, what um, got me thinking a lot about ecofascism when I joined on to this product project was like the discourses coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic and this idea of the earth healing because of, you know, mm. coronavirus. Um, and now we have monkeypox on the horizon. And we know the, you know, the hatred that is being attached to that and directed at, um, you know, the LGBTQIA plus community and how um, I could see that sort of having a similar type of, or already has, you know, similar type of discourse mm-hmm. um, and that's super dangerous. So, um, you know, I could see that being something to think about in the future, in a future project. I will say that I think that one of the things about this project is how useful it is pedagogically because of the way you break it down into these myth-busting quick essays. And so I think all of these ideas, of course, are ones we want to see all of you as scholars, as brilliant scholars, continue to pursue in each of your individual works. But I, I am interested if you think that this particular form is something more academics should pursue, perhaps in terms of pedagogical usage, because, you know, as many of you, I think um, Bruno pointed out, it's difficult to always explain the intricacies of these issues when you're like, well, I've read like 50 theory books and 50 history books. And so, yeah, I have the answer to like why you're wrong, but it's very difficult to communicate that to that to um, non-academics or to even undergrads who are learning about these things for the first time. And so I, I do think, you know, how you made this had a very specific use. And I think this is Bruno and I'm just quick response to that is that, you know, it's also, you don't even need to read all those books because <laughs> actually like these things are very easy to debunk. Um, once you kind of, re- yeah. you know, you read the many essays or really think about it. Um, they really don't hold up to critical scrutiny of any kind, I would say. <laughs> and I suppose this is Alex. I suppose the challenge is, is, is leading students to a point where they understand that these are ideas and positions that need to be debunked. Um, and, and I mean, to go back to the point that I think everyone has made about how um, fortunate it was that we all found each other to work together, um, not just because of the what we've created here that we're talking about today, but um, just for our own edification and for our own scholarship and our own teaching, because ecofascism is itself a really hard thing to pin down. So working together is what helped us all kind of figure out what we were talking about together and, and kind of separately, individually. Um, and that's that's useful pedagogically too, right? Because you know, to go back to the point about how students might say, "Oh, Thanos had some good ideas." I mean, the students do say Thanos had some good ideas. In fact, um, Marvel has started um, troping on that point by like dropping graffiti into its new films and television shows that says like Thanos was right. Um, but, but that's that's something that I feel like was really inspired by like real world Reddit discourse, you know, and. Um, so a student might look at Thanos and say, um, you know, Thanos had some good points, but, you know, you can point out to a student, well, what Thanos is saying is actually really similar to what, like, uh, Peyton Gendron, the Buffalo shooter, was saying in his uh, manifesto. It's really similar to what um, Patrick Crucius, the 2019 El Paso shooter, was saying in his. 
And at that point, they can say, oh, okay, well, you know, like, so we got some real life, you know, villains, right? Real life super villains, right? And, and, but, but once they can kind of recognize those real life super villains, then there's kind of an even bigger gulf between the students and what they think and, 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 and what they see eco fascism as being. And I think that's one of the reasons the myth busting format um, is so useful is because, um, I mean, that's that's kind of the way fascism works. And that's why like eco fascism and not like eco like xenophobia or eco racism is a good word because fascism isn't particularly ideologically consistent. It's really hard to pin it down. It, fascism is something that works because it kind of recycles existing ideas uh, in a way that gets everyday people on board. Um, it's not oftentimes without them even realizing it. So, you know, we can put Thanos and, you know, all of these shooters on the screen and students can recognize them as super real life supervillains, you know, but not recognize how they as everyday students have any relationship to those people. Um, so kind of breaking those uh, figures, ideas down into kind of six kind of concise myths as a way to show students, right? Listen, you might not, you know, you are definitely, you are not the El Paso shooter and, you know, great. Um, and, uh, and obviously we don't want you to become, you know, <laughs> that kind of person, but also we want to make sure you, you don't become the kind of person who restates ideas and keeps them circulating in media in ways that kind of keep encouraging people like the El Paso shooter to act. And so like um, if we can show students, you know, you don't share an ideology with these sorts of people, but you might recycle, you know, this idea that they're talking about. So by boiling those kind of, you know, manifestos or creeds or whatever you want to call it down to six talking points that individually kind of circulate pretty broadly and popularly and have for a long, long time in, in, in a lot of environmental work, um, we can kind of walk students through, you know, uh, you know, the, the kind of the smaller ideas that they might actually contribute to that, you know, plenty of other people right now have, have, have mentioned, you know, we, there are, I think April said tomes and tomes of research disproving each of them, right? But we can kind of isolate them and show students, you're not Thanos, but you might contribute to the way Thanos thinks. And like, for example, one of our myths is environmental and social collapse are desirable, right? You know, everything sucks anyway, so might as well burn it down. And, you know, I would challenge you to find any environmentalist who hasn't in their <laughs> darkest moment for a brief second thought that everything would be better if we just burned it down. But, you know, the more people say... I'll admit to it. <laughs> yeah, the more people kind of say that sort of thing, you know, the, the more it kind of licenses people to act on it. So, um, so, so I, I think that's why the form of breaking it into these really, really easily digestible, uh, kind of like sound bites, right. Of, of what the myths are, um, is useful for students because, um, it's hard enough for them to, to, to understand any commonality they might have with like, uh, people who precipitate violence in the name of environment, uh, and race and, and, and nation. Um, uh, without kind of showing them, you know, you don't have to ideologically be on board with them to to be contributing to kind of the thought process. And like, this is April. And like Bruno said, um, we don't have to have read all of these mm -hmm. large, you know, mm -hmm. these large um, genealogies of scholarship to understand it. And I think that's one 
um, really powerful message for, at least in my experience in the classroom, is, is um, reminding students that they actually do have these, this critical thinking ability to some, you know, their spidey sense to <laughs> get back to secret, right? Like the spidey <laughs> sense starts to tingle when you hear these things and you think, well, I must not know enough. I, I hear it a lot. So it must mm-hmm. be right. Instead of like, well, let, let's stop and just, just think about it for a second, right? Um, is population really the problem or is it distribution, right? Does population control have a one-to-one relationship with consumption? Um, so, you know, those those brief questions, I think, are really, um, really powerful reminders that, that think, thinking gets better in community and that we are all capable of concise rebuttals to this nonsense, you know, and um, we know that that our students are by and large our their first research tool is TikTok and then YouTube. Mm-hmm. So we, I mean, I think it's a real challenge for educators and researchers to translate our um, our ideas and our research into digestible formats and mm-hmm. and be compassionate with ourselves when trying to do so because it is so 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 much harder and takes so much more time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also something that I think is good to good, or I have found very useful to talk about with students is, yeah, this is hard. I feel like my brain is breaking for a minute and then it breaks through and things get really clear. Um, it doesn't mean that we're doing anything wrong when it, when thinking gets really hard, you know, mm-hmm. it's just that we have been programmed certain ways not to that actually strike that. That sounds a little conspiracy theory. My, the comp two class that I'm teaching right now, the first half of the semester is all uh, we're, we're talking about conspiracy theories and conspiracy thinking. And um, yeah, so like all of this is, is like fresh in my mind. Cause I've just been, you know, talking through this with my students and um, yeah. And so it's, I think it's, it's great to, have a, a simple tool for them because it is so hard to get through. Um, and I acknowledge it for myself. Like, I mean, my, I mean our brains are inherently kind of broken um, and they're designed to just quickly pocket information away neatly and and, and efficiently. And sometimes that efficiency um, is where a lot of this stuff happens. Cause the more I hear it, like you said, the more um, it just kind of ingrains itself in there and and becomes harder to, to kind of break down. Um, and so that's what that's one of the things I love about this project is that that um, and that you've been saying you know all all um, throughout this podcast is that kind of bite sized, quick, um, digestible, right? all of those things um, get through to people in a way that you know a, a three hundred page book that might have lots of great information is not ever going to do. Um, so yeah. Yeah, tying it back into one of the points brought up earlier that the online format was important to all of you, this being available online. And I think that ties into Alex mentioning Reddit and April mentioning TikTok and YouTube. It's the reality is these ideas get perpetuated and repeated in those spaces, those online spaces. And so having something that interacts with those communities is really important. And one of the this is Shane. One of the the issues with that is not just that, like Alex was saying, that these ideas permeate our culture and then lead certain people, certainly not the majority, but a, a terrible minority to become these foot soldiers of white supremacy, these foot soldiers of ultranationalism, these eco-fascists, um, as terrible as it is. It's that those ideas are also uh, actively blocking the kinds of solutions to the, the problems that... Um, 
that people do acknowledge with the environment and our society. And so if you think as one of our myths say, city people are the problem, that rampant anti-urbanism, if you think that, well, how are we ever going to break down our rural urban divides to, to build mm-hmm. climate resilient economies and just economies? If you think that humans are naturally selfish, and that's just an uncontested idea, then th- that inures you against uh, and lowers the bar against acts of compassion and camaraderie and solidarity with communities. If you think that overpopulation is a problem, it takes the, the your eyes off corporations and governments and militaries every step of the way. So it's this double-edged or double-folded thing where you have to use the debunking to both um, try to take out the the venom that that might cause more violence, but also, you know, dispel the fog that is uh, occluding your ability to see uh, new and better ways of being an environmentalist or being uh, for climate justice. Well said, Shane. Um, Yeah, I I just wanted to add um, that, you know, working with on this with the five of us was really fantastic. As people have said, you know, as scholars, it's great to do. Maybe we don't do it enough. Maybe we should do it more. I'd like to do it more. Um, it also had its, I don't even want to say challenges, but, you know, we all came yeah. uh, with different ideas about what's, you know, how do we want to define eco-fascism? How do we, you know, what are do we think are the kind of salient points or arguments? And um, so we didn't even necessarily all come to be on the same page. Um, but that, you know, that shouldn't be a barrier to being able to collaborate with people that you have mm-hmm. to see eye to eye and define every term um, you know, precisely. Otherwise you can't work together or something like that. I think you can, you can really be very productive, um, despite those things. Um, and so, but that being said, I I thought, you know, we shouldn't get through this podcast without, you know, us actually telling you what the definition of ecofascism is that we <laughs> actually have. Um, so the, <laughs> the uh, definition that we came up with um, is ecofascism is environmentalism that one advocates or accepts violence and two reinforces existing systems of power and inequality Ecofascism suggests that certain kinds of people are naturally and exclusively entitled to control environmental resources. Basically, ecofascism offers all the old, same old shit, but worse. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Yeah. Um, I, I was gonna, I was gonna like comment on this like at the e- very end of the podcast, but it it relates to uh, what you were just talking about Um, because, and this is. This is a total aside, but it just, it's been giving me so much joy uh, while we've been recording this. But, um, and so I'm just going to basically describe what I've been seeing. But um, throughout this podcast today, um, while each of our guests have kind of been talking, um, there has been like finger snapping in the background and finger waving. And um, like when, when, you know, one of them has just been, you know, sharing an idea or, or speaking, um, you know, and, and kind of, uh, you know, defining things or whatever it is, and just seeing the way that each of you um, is so supportive of each other. And, and just that, I don't know, it just, it gave me so much joy to see that. And, um, you know, knowing, and then also hearing about your process that you were just describing there, um, I think is just uh, um, has been been so awesome. So that's just again a total total aside. But um, so it is time to to move to end on a roll. But is there anything else 
um, that uh, any of you would like to, to make sure that you share about the project that you were hoping to, to talk about and just didn't have an opportunity to, to do so yet? Uh, I'll just add, I think this was mentioned briefly, but I'll just reiterate it. But, um, you know, you can find the zine on the uh, ASLI Association for the Study of Literature and Environment website under the Teach tab. It's on the Teaching Resources page. Um, so you can download the PDF there. Um, and I think that, um, you know, we've all kind of sent it out into the world through other avenues, but that's kind of the, the it's permanent home. So um, that's where you can find it. Yeah, and we'll have it linked to the show notes uh, as well for, for people listening. I just want to plug one of the most important conclusions um, in the zine and strategies and tactics, and that is to fight for and support in whatever way we can land back initiatives and reparations in whatever way and form those look. Um, that's just something that we can do today, depending on whose land we're on um, and support in whatever way we're capable. All right, so let's end on a roll. Um, so uh, if you're not familiar with this, uh, I'm going to roll a 12-sided die. Uh, it's digital today because I am at school and I don't have my, my dice bag with me. Um, but uh, I've got 12 random questions and whichever one comes up. Uh, we have five guests today. I'm not going to do five different questions. Uh, so we'll just do one question, um, but then each of you uh, can have an opportunity to kind of answer that question for us. So without further ado, we have number... Eight. So eight is uh, which environmental author, artist, or theorist would you recommend right now? So just if, if there's something really recent that you've read or you've come across that is, uh, it can it can be a creative work, it could be a scholarly work, it could be a movie, a book, you know, whatever. Um, but you know, something environmentally related um, that you've come across recently that you think people should check out. This is April. I would like to recommend um, the work of Natalie Ball and Analia Hillman, especially their um, recent exhibit on at Oregon Contemporary in Portland called Water NFS. Nancy Fred. I don't know. Actually. <laughs> I think I think NF, NFS stands for not for sale. Oh, thank you. That's that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is Cassie. I um, have been working on an article on Under the Feet of Jesus by Helena Maria Vermontes, and um, I came across this article by um, Professor Dennis Lopez called Ghosts in the Barn, Dead Labor and Capital Accumulation in Helena Maria Vermontes' Under the Feet of Jesus. And I just, it's the most brilliant, clear essay I have read in such a long time. So I um, look forward to reading more of Lopez's work, and I cannot recommend that article enough. Uh, this is Shane. I just finished Matt Johnson's new novel, Invisible Things. I would call it like meta cli-fi. Uh, it can mm. be about a lot of other things too, but it's it's great. It's fun. It's still summer. It's still beach read time. Uh, and of course, his his past novel, Pym, is a masterpiece. Period. Exclamation point. <laughs> and this is Alex. I know I'm, I'm never going to be satisfied with my answer because there are just too many things running through my head, but I've been majorly over my um, literature and environment syllabus. So I was just rereading today, Julian Brave Noise Cat's article, How to Survive an Apocalypse, which is really fabulous. So mm. since I recently laid eyes on it and I love it, um, that I'm going to throw that out there. I want to give a shout out to another podcast. It's called Good Fire. Um, and I one of the hosts is Amy Cardinal Christensen, who's a, a fabulous uh, Metis scholar and fire practitioner. 
Um, so it's just a podcast that's all about the resurgence of indigenous fire practices in North America and, and possibly beyond North America at this point. Um, so that's a great podcast to check out. All right. Awesome. Thank you for those recommendations. I, I've, I've added several of those to my little list over here. So, yeah. Yes, it's always one of the best parts of the episode is getting to <laughs> hear about all the good things other people recommend to us. Okay, so we did get the recommendation for where to find the zine. And as Brandon said, we'll include that. But is there anything else uh, you want to tell us about where people can find your individual work? Whether you have socials or websites or if you want to give our listeners a way to find you specifically. This is April Anson. You can find me on Twitter or through the Googles. This is Cassie Galantine. You can find me on Twitter at, at Cassie Galantine. Um, and we also have a email account associated with the zine where you can reach us. Uh, I believe it's Thanos was an ego fascist at gmail.com. So feel free to give feedback or questions to reach <laughs> out there. <laughs> Uh, I'm Shane, and I sort of slouched away from social media, but you can find me on my Salisbury University faculty webpage. This is Alex. I am on Twitter, um, at Alex Menrisky, although it gives me great anxiety. So when I say I'm on Twitter, I, <laughs> have, an, I have an app on a device that I never open. Um, and I do also yeah, have tough. a website, um, same thing, alexmenrisky.com. This is Bruno Serafin. You can find me on Twitter at Bruno Marzipan. Um, I just recently, <laughs> I just recently hit 200 followers. So, you know, the sky's yeah. the limit if you want to, you know, get in, get it on the ground floor. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 lo I love, I love a good pun, uh, pun Twitter uh, handle. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Um, well, thank you all again so much for, for being here. This has been uh, a really, really great episode. Um, lots to unpack and, and think about, uh, you know, as we all kind of go forward, but, you know, both for, for me as, as the host getting to experience this, but hopefully for our listeners as well. Um, so thank you all for listening. If you have an idea for an episode, uh, either a personal project or there's someone that you would like for us to reach out to have on the show, uh, please feel free to do that. You can find us on Twitter at asley underscore ecocast you can email us we're asley.ecocast at gmail.com and on our twitter page is also um the url for our link tree which has the submission form and our email and all that wonderful stuff i'm a little sad our email isn't as exciting as Thanos was an ecofascist i'll be honest <laughs> If you enjoy listening to EcoCast, you can help us reach a larger audience by liking, sharing, or tweeting about today's show. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.